Relaxation program number eight. First, find a comfortable place to sit. Your habitation pods have been designed for your comfort as well as your survival on the new world. Sit with a straight back. The many years you spent in the cramped confines of the Exodus ships are in the past now. Stretch out your spine. If you struggle to do so, please consult your nearest medic, as spinal problems must be treated efficiently to ensure a healthy, work-capable populace. Take a look around your habitation pod. Consider how lucky you are to have escaped the burning of the old world. Maybe that's something you could think about every once in a while instead of moaning about anxiety. Uh, pod, I'm not finding this very relaxing. I'm sorry. I'm simply reading from the approved New World Relaxation Program script. Fine, carry on. Allow your eyes to soften and take a deep breath in. Any breathing issues should be reported immediately to your settlement-assigned medic. Then just I don't know, relax or something. Honestly, who needs to be told how to relax? We survived the destruction of an entire planet, and now you need help relaxing. We interrupt this learning pod for an emergency broadcast from the new Earth government. This is a warning going out to all the colonists in the northern settlement. You have been ordered to evacuate your homes. Three warnings have been sent to you since the announcement that we will be drilling for oil underneath your habitation pods. This drilling will commence imminently. You are highly advised to evacuate immediately, as the drilling shall go ahead on the proposed date at the proposed time, regardless of who remains in the exclusion zone. This new world requires power. Kindly do not halt progress by remaining in your settlement any longer. Vacate. This message was brought to you by your friendly New Earth government. Do you wish to recommence the relaxation program? No. No, I don't think I do. I've had a bunch of people get in touch to say thank you for the Carl Sagan quotes back in episode three. Some of you were reminded of him, but some of you had not heard of him at all. In which case, there are so many things ahead of you to enjoy. His 1980 series Cosmos is just wonderful. He also wrote a book to accompany it. He wrote so many fantastic books, but I'm going to particularly spotlight the Demon Haunted World: Science as a Candle in the Dark. Start there and enjoy the journey. And as a treat, there is more Carl Sagan at the end of this episode. This episode's theme is uncertainty. It's a theme inspired by our guest, Dr. Tamsin Edwards of King's College London. Dr. Edwards is a climate scientist who specialises in assessing uncertainties in climate models. Her TEDx talk is called "How to Love Uncertainty in Climate Science." Go and look it up. I really recommend it. Tamsin definitely takes the award for the longest interview I recorded. She was fascinating about many subjects related to climate for an hour and a quarter. So it was agonising cutting all of that down to just a few minutes. But I think you're really going to enjoy what you hear. Let's get. Straight into it. My name's Tamsin Edwards.、Um, my official job title is lecturer in physical geography at King's College London, but usually it's quicker just to say I'm a climate scientist. My favourite topic is uncertainty, and if you talk <laughs> to me for long enough,、uh, you'll find me ranting about basically a couple of different things. So one thing that I feel really strongly about is that we ought to talk more about. Certainty and uncertainty in science, in research, because 
not necessarily in school, but there's a kind of a cultural myth and a cultural understanding of science as being facts. The fact, you know, it's real science, it's what we know, it's truth, it's facts. It's like these kind of hard bricks of knowledge that we stack up in a wall and that's it, that's done. But real research is super messy when you're at the cutting edge and you try out this thing and you think this thing and you get a bit of data and it's not conclusive and then you have an argument with someone else who thinks something different, Uh, they have a different theory, they have a different interpretation of the data. And so the edge of science is this very fuzzy, changing boundary of knowledge. Otherwise, we wouldn't do it. If we knew it, then we wouldn't be studying it. And so so we need to kind of get comfortable with this idea that when we report new science ideas and results, you're always going to get this group said this, then another group come along and say something slightly different. And then we say, oh, well, what we thought 10 years ago is wrong, because that's the whole point of science and learning and knowledge. Now, climate science is no different. And of course... It suffers from two extra problems. One is that it's so politicised and so kind of part of the culture wars that people will use that as a way to attack the science, you know. Either misunderstanding how science works or kind of willfully misrepresenting it occasionally. And so it suffers from people saying, aha, you don't know this precisely, or you said this last week and this, you know, this week. So that's there's that. And then the kind of extra problem that climate science has is that climate is inherently uncertain to some degree. So weather is a thing that you measure and you get out your thermometer and your rain gauge and you go outside and you take a number and that has some uncertainty based around the equipment but it's basically a sort of a fixed thing in one at one point in time. Now climate is effectively the probability that different types of weather will happen. So when you make a forecast of the of the weather that might be a probability of, the, of it being rainy or, or whatever. But climate change is, is it's all probabilities. It's all kind of, we think it's going to shift towards hotter days rather than saying on Wednesday, May the 15th, it will be this temperature. And it's a bit of a subtle difference, but it kind of compounds the, uncertain problem, the uncertainty problem because you are always talking about probability and the balance of probability rather than, if you like, very concrete predictions of one number or one outcome. I think climate science is really variable in how well it's reported and talked about. Mm -hmm. And some people really try and double down on the certainty aspects because they're worried about persuading people that the science is robust. And so they say they really emphasise all of the stuff that we're really sure about you know, greenhouse gas science, a lot of it dates back at least 200 years. Uh, so fair enough, you know, we want to emphasise we know this and we know this and we know this. And, and that is kind of the, the fact sort of parts, the, the, the bricks in the wall of knowledge that we've known for a long time. But I think it's really important to also talk about why we have uncertainty or why we have different people predicting different things and how our knowledge evolves. And you do get people that really try and do that. Um, Even within one outlet, though, it can be variable. So the BBC, for example, did a BBC full programme that I was a consultant on called Climate Change by Numbers. And it was entirely, really, about kind of the probability and the subtlety of the statistics and the numbers um, and the complexity of it. And they really worked hard to really um, authentically and accurately represent how climate science works. 
And then they've just had a BBC One programme, which necessarily has a different audience and a different aim, which is very much focusing on the we know this, we know this, this is going to happen. So even within one channel, if you like, and one outlet and one institution, and the BBC is a very big one, you can, I'm not saying the BBC One angle was wrong, but you can get a lot of variation in how it's presented. And that can mean, you know, we all project what we want and what we desire and what we imagine and what we believe onto the things that we see. And especially with the internet, we are able to pick out the facts that support our prior views. And we all do this. You know, none of us are immune to it. So depending on the different angles that are taken in the news, in, um, you know, online and blogs and stuff, people will always be able to find the angle that they were already heading for. I think the first mistake that people make when faced with someone who really doesn't believe any of the science at all is to say, okay, what should you say to someone like that? And really the question is, what should you ask? Because, you know, I've met, for example, quite recently, um, someone who believes we live on a flat earth. You know, and we know that this is a probably increasing in popularity as a as a view. And again, you know, you can find on the internet all kinds of videos and blog posts that will support that view and show lots of numbers and evidence in quote marks um, to support that. So what's interesting is how did they arrive at that view? What set them down that path? What was the tipping point from not knowing either way, not caring either way, not knowing either way? Just something tip them, you know, were they, were they cross about some newspaper article they read and bloody scientists, you know, was it, was it one particular person that they really trusted that already believed that, that convinced them? Is it part of a grander scheme of feeling, um, or a, not a grander scheme, a greater picture of feeling out of control, like the world is run in ways that you don't understand and have no power over. And so it's a way of trying to make sense of the world, gain control over the world, whether it's, you know, um, consciously or not. So for me, someone like that who doesn't believe CO2 is a greenhouse gas, I don't necessarily hold out great hopes for convincing them. I am interested in how they came to that view. And sometimes I found you can shift people a little bit on things. You can shift people often, um, I found, from all climate scientists are corrupt to all climate scientists are corrupt except you. <laughs> and that, that's possible. Or, or, you know, maybe you're, maybe you're not corrupt, maybe you're just inept. You know, and, and I'm always interested in, if you can just make that 1% ground, that's, that's a win, right? That's something. That's different from where they were before. And the other thing that I think is really important is allowing people to um, change their mind with um, kind of dignity, if you like. I'm trying not to sound too patronising, but making space for people to change their mind and say, oh, maybe I didn't get that right before, or maybe you've got a point, without being confrontational and gotcha and aha about it because we know that doesn't work people double down and they get um cross and they're you know understandably embarrassed or defensive or whatever we all hate changing our mind we hate being shown that we're wrong we hate admitting that we might be wrong and so anything where you say well have you thought about this or you know always it helps to acknowledge where people are right or where they've got a good question you know, I can see where you think that, 
but have you thought about this? Or, yeah, that's partially right, but it's a bit more complicated than that. And and I find with those ins, and maybe people listening will disagree who I've had these conversations with, you can at least, at least have a little bit of civil dialogue where people say, oh, well, you know, maybe you've got a point about that one thing, that one little thing. I can see that actually climate scientists do take that into account after all. And that's worth it, I think. Not every climate scientist interested or good at talking to the public. Um, and some get very quickly frustrated in a way that can be counterproductive, just like anyone. You know, every field and every group of people um, has some people who are probably a bit better, um, you know, we will learn all the time, better at um, perhaps talking to the public than others in terms of using jargon or having kind of patience to describe something lots of times in different ways or, you know, treating questions in good faith sometimes, you know, people, understandably, my colleagues, some of my colleagues can get quite defensive and assume that someone is attacking them when actually their first question might be quite confrontational, but if you actually sit down and chat a little bit longer, that that initial kind of slight confrontational attitude disappears quite quickly. Perhaps they've kind of got a lot of stuff wound up for a while that they've been meaning to say and they're frustrated and they really want you to listen and they're cross because no one else has listened before and no one else has given them answers before that they that they are happy with. And just diffusing that initial tension when someone approaches you get a couple of questions in, get five or ten minutes in to dialogue on Twitter or in real life, obviously it's better face-to-face, you can um, often find that people really warm up and really calm down and really um, are ever so grateful for your time and, you know, so pleased to have had, I don't know, um, your attention as a climate scientist for that ten minutes or that half an hour which can be quite powerful. Yeah, you just got to hang in there. There's a Walt Disney Goofy short from 1950 called Motor Mania. Mild-mannered Goofy, as Mr Walker, gets behind the wheel of a car and physically changes into his angry alter ego, Mr Wheeler, shouting at everyone else on the road. It was about road rage before that term had been invented. I think you could remake that short now, but it would be the internet instead of cars. The internet is a wonderful tool in so many ways, but one thing it's also brilliant at is dehumanising the person you're speaking to. Surely this isn't a living, breathing person with hopes and desires just like me. They're just a bunch of sprites on my screen. I'm going to go ahead and hurl a ton of abuse at them because I'm pretty sure none of this is real. I love what Townsend says about engaging with people on Twitter, how after five to ten minutes of conversation with someone you profoundly disagree with, they often start to warm up and calm down and you can have a conversation full of calm dialogue rather than shouty antagonism. It does make me wonder what it would sound like if people talked in person the way they talk on the internet, say, on Question Time. Thank you, Hannah. Hannah Wilkinson there on the recent news that Kenya has sought a deal with the International Monetary Fund. Here to talk about that report, we have our panel of experts joined by an invited audience. Terry Oswald, you were on a financial website. What are your thoughts on the report we've just seen? Oh, I thought she was really ugly. Like, I wouldn't want to fuck her at all. We apologise to your viewers for that language. 
I was really thinking more about the content, what Hannah was seeing, the deal with the IMF. Yes, no, no, I hear you. See, I thought the bitch was so ugly that she would be flattering herself if she thought she could ever get raped. Oh, can I jump in here, Kirsty? Uh, yes, please do. For our viewers, Janet Edwards writes for the financial pages at The Telegraph. Yeah, you see, I have to disagree with Terry because I thought she deserved to be raped every day for the rest of her life. Right, so difference of opinion there. I really want to get away from what she looked like and pull it back to what she was seeing and what this move might represent globally. And if our audience want to jump in. Yes, the gentleman there in the blue shirt. Hi, yeah, uh, neither of your panellists know what they're talking about. <laughs> well, I have to agree on that. Yeah, you see, I thought she was fit as fuck, and I, for one, would like to come in all her holes. Right, well, that's not really the sort of comment we're after. Why not? I was complimenting her. I don't know whether you were. Let's go to that gentleman over there. I thought she had amazing tits. Can we seriously talk about what she was saying? Fine, she had an annoying voice, like it actually might put me off fucking her. Oh yeah, I agree with that. If I was going to fuck her, she would have to keep quiet. I don't think she'd want to do that with either of you. Whoa, that's no really rude. Can we take the mic away from them, please? Oh yeah, that's right. Typical card in my freedom of speech. Back to my interview with Dr. Tamsin Edwards from King's College London. It's interesting. I've been trying to reflect on how I see Twitter changing over the years, and I think um, part of the problem is, of course over time everyone accumulates more followers and follows more people so it's much harder to stay personal and and one-to-one and and build up relationships with people and I find myself not really getting to know new people that often anymore because I can't keep track of different usernames I can't reply to everyone Um, on the other hand I get probably a bit more exposure these days to US audiences um, possibly because I've got more followers possibly certain people retweeting you know in and out of timelines and so I feel like I'm getting more of the kind of I don't believe in any climate science which it tends to be I think I haven't got the not the survey stats to me but from anecdotally more common in the US in the UK it tends to be more of a nuanced spectrum of like well yes we're probably changing the climate but I don't think it's going to be that bad and if we just throw some technology at it if we just wait 30 or 50 years down the road we'll be able to deal with it so it's different kinds of conversations um but it's it's so luck of the draw you know you I had um I had a I put a little snippet of myself on the ITV news on Twitter and I was trying to explain something quite complicated from a paper as a co-author on and then it got cut down as well because evening news you know you get 8 seconds um not even exaggerating really um and and it got retweeted by this I this skeptic who's very he's like a tabloid journalist he's very kind of you know good with words and humor and quips and stuff and um, and he's got a lot of followers, and I just got absolutely <laughs> slated by all these people going, "You idiot! What? No wonder everyone thinks all climate scientists are idiots if you say things like this." And I can totally see why it wasn't the most successful bit of climate science communication, but it was a bit. Oh, I, don't, I didn't try and justify it. I sort of thought about trying to add a reply with a bit of clarification but I thought this this is not going to be a battle I'm going to win I'm just going to just cringe and let it go (laughs) all this kind of general public opinion certainly in the UK you know we've seen it a lot in the last month with the Extinction Rebellion protests with Greta Thunberg with um, the BBC One Climate Programme with David Attenborough Um, there's tremendous public goodwill and support which is much more vocal and much more common than I've ever felt it before. 
So I get a lot more, you know, tweets, requests for talks, requests for media interviews than ever before. And I don't think it's all to do with me becoming more senior or me having more Twitter followers. So you just get more, you know, um, uh, more of a profile. I think there's just more demand for climate science news, more support for it, more acknowledgement that it's just part of our public discourse now. And so you are just an expert, like anyone else, talking about something which is broadly not that controversial. You mentioned Extinction Rebellion and um, the youth strike for climate. What are your thoughts on, on those? Really interesting. Um, I'm thinking of writing a blog post actually imminently, so that may be out by the time this um, podcast comes out. I, I wouldn't like to speak for other climate scientists because I haven't really talked to too many other colleagues about it that much. I've seen some reactions. I've had little conversations. I think... Broadly speaking, the climate science community is a little cautious but also kind of warming to them. When this first started out, um, well, back in August, I had a Twitter spat with Extinction Rebellion. And I can't remember, the, I've been meaning to look up the original tweet that they posted that I, I um, didn't like, but I... I replied basically saying, you know, very few climate scientists think that humans will be wiped out. We think other species will be, our being will be. Uh, we think that vulnerable people within our species are very much at risk. Um, what we don't really think is that all of humanity will be wiped out. We think that humans are adaptable enough and we are doing enough that there will be you know, rich, privileged humans that survive. Now, that is not ideal. And we, what the sort of Twitter falling out was that I felt by saying, by focusing on extinct, the extinction threat to humanity, which not many climate scientists would really be on board with, I would say, they were distracting from those issues of the profound inequalities of climate impacts. And instead of saying, how do we protect and help the most vulnerable in our society now and in the future, it became about, oh my God, we're all going to die. I'm going to die. My, I shouldn't have children. My children are going to die. And that, to me, felt more selfish. And it felt more about self-protection and less focused on how do we protect, you know, the brown people the other side of the world that nobody actually is thinking about right now, for example, to kind of paraphrase. Um, now, I think I'm not super familiar with their literature and, and th you know, obviously I've kind of heard some of their interviews and bits and bobs. I think they've toned down the, hum the destruction of all humanity aspect of their name and broadened it out to kind of biodiversity, other species, which is fair, and focused much more closely on the IPCC's assessment of what uh, we would have to do to carbon emissions to avoid certain levels of, of um, temperature change. Now, albeit they have requested that that is accelerated, they're demanding that it's accelerated, but it feels more grounded in the science and what the climate scientists are saying, you know, maybe not 100%, but much more closely than it probably was when it started out. And so I think for that reason, plus in just pure amazement at sort of the way that they have 
apparently changed the landscape and the language and the dialogue in this country and potentially around the world. Um, I think the climate science community are broadly speaking, um, you know, quite uh, quite impressed at the effect that they've had, even if we don't agree with the scientific accuracy of 100% of the things that they say. Now, that is a very difficult debate, and I waded into this debate in about 2013. I wrote an article about advocacy, uh, and that was more about climate scientists being advocates. But in anything, it's extremely difficult, and in science communication generally, it's extremely difficult, I think, to judge the balance of scientific... um, uh, precision and accuracy and advocacy because I've always leant on the side of it is possible to be scientifically accurate and still compelling and approachable if you take enough time to really reflect on how to take that complex science and those caveats and those those difficulties that make it you know this you know difficult thing to talk about and turn it into something that is scientifically correct but still digestible and compelling and emotionally resonant I think that's totally possible it's hard and it takes time Um, so I've always that's why I'm a little bit cautious about Extinction Rebellion because they like most green and environmental activist groups and advocacy groups it's difficult for them to walk that line Um, and so I think you know, Greta Thunberg, of course, is another part of the story. I think, in general, she's extremely careful about what she says, and she also apparently does check with climate scientists and scientists what she says. There's always going to be the odd phrase and the odd example where people can pick up on it and say, aha, you got that wrong, or climate scientists don't say that, or phrasings, or simplifications of the story. Um... And that's difficult. I, I wouldn't presume to answer for other climate scientists about how they view that line. Some people are absolutely all in out, all out supportive of everything that Extinction Rebellion are doing because of the way they're changing the landscape. Some people are a bit more sort of cautious and a bit more like, well, yeah, the, broadly this is good, but I'm a bit worried that they said this because it's, you know, I'm a bit worried if people are have this interpretation. I think even just today I saw a tweet by Richard Black which said... I'm worried because there's a public survey that thinks climate change has the, you know, is going to or is the, has the potential to wipe humanity out, and lots of and few people disagree with that statement. And I don't think I'm wrong in saying that that's wrong. You know, we're going to survive. You know, we're we're clever and and rich and adaptable. But what matters is who survives and the profound inequality of that. Um, not the existential threat you know there are other existential threats uh to to humanity of course lots of other terrible hazards that could befall us um and so you know it's wrapped up in their very name so it's not an easy thing and i you know i'm almost worried to write a blog post about it because i don't want to be seen to be you know, we all seize on these things. My last blog post was about this as black and white thinking, right? And, and in fact, even Greta Thunberg says, I, I believe in black and white thinking when it comes to climate change. And so I worry that if I write about this, and I may well have done by the time, you know, this, this podcast comes out, 
that people will see that as climate scientists endorses extinction rebellion or climate scientists slams extinction rebellion. What about climate scientists quite likes extinction rebellion, pretty impressed with all this stuff, pretty pro, has a few caveats. I mean, it's a bit longer, you know. <laughs> and, and, you know, and, and I probably need to get more informed on exactly um, the things they're putting out. Maybe it doesn't matter. Maybe, maybe what matters is that the, the message and the science is 95% correct and the impetus certainly certainly what is is correct is the is the impetus in terms of rapid and systemic change is needed if we're going to meet the Paris Agreement that is absolutely clear you know we need to change everything in every way that we can think of in order to meet those targets um, now how we do that and and how difficult that is and how much money it costs and all of these extra questions are uh, very complicated and what the exact effects are if we were to manage global warming to one and a half degrees celsius uh, centigrade uh, you know to one and a half degrees or two degrees is is uncertain to some extent you know the timing of different changes the risks the thresholds that we might cross all of that is also terribly nuanced and and complicated in a way but their basic message that if we don't act quickly and in a very uh, systemic way we will not meet the Paris agreements and even if we do it will be difficult is absolutely correct and the rest is sort of devil in the details but as a scientist I'm always trying to sort of balance those um those judgments of well i don't i don't want to become a well actually you know i don't want to become a kind of well actually you know is it is it's not quite like that it's more like this you know does that, does that matter if the if the basic message is right and i wouldn't say i had the answer for that i admire you for what you're doing because i think being funny about climate science can get you into all kinds of trouble and i think it's because you know we we want we want climate scientists to be earnest and we want them to be saviors of the world and, and people we look up to and terribly serious. Um, but there are funny things. I mean, sometimes it's quite dark humour, you know. Um, I remember one thing I always stuck with me. There's a guy called Andy Ridgewell, who's a brilliant scientist. And he looks at climate change on very long time scales, tens of millions of years, hundreds of millions of years, CO2 in the past, this kind of thing. Um, how, how the CO2 dissolving in the oceans affects the life in it, that kind of thing. Um, and, we were talk- and he was at a conference talking about, you know, we're basically undergoing this great extinction at the moment, not just climate change, but, you know, human activities. And he said, well, you know, if you look at the past in the geological record, uh, whenever we've had the great extinctions, then afterwards, there's been this great flourishing of biodiversity. So really, in the long view, in the long term, we could get all kinds of incredible animals out of this, which is like a really amazing sort of deep time perspective. I think the only other time I really sort of laugh with the climate change science is is just how really boringly ordinary we are. Because I think, you know, environmental activists and campaigners think of climate science as saving the world and we're heroes and we're in capes and we're all sort of noble, sort of working in the labs, kind of 
you know, devoting our lives. You know, I mean, maybe there's a bit of truth in that, or maybe some climate scientists are like, like that sometimes. Um, and then maybe the climate skeptics think that, well, you know, this kind of nefarious sort of, the sort of Bond villain with the levers trying to control the world or or plotting, making up the data and sort of this like uh, incredible sort of film noir sort of, you know, imagination of, of climate scientists. And we're just the same as any other scientist. You know, we're sort of swearing at our code for going wrong and why has it got another bug in it? Why when it won't bang the computer like this? And, you know, and we argue with each other and we're grumpy when we don't have coffee and we, you know, we we have all the same kind of internal politics and competitiveness and pettiness and kindness and stupidity and, like, really, really boring talks. Like, there are some really boring conference talks. You don't understand a word of it. And then there's some really inspiring people who are wonderful and, and, and do great science. And then you get things where people are wrong and then you get people that make some amazing discovery and then there's all this incremental progress. And it's just this normal mess of science. And it's not that different from when I was in particle physics as a PhD student except that particle physicists are nuts because they stay up 24 hours a day because the beam is running 24 hours a day. So climate scientists have slightly better work-life balance <laughs> than particle physicists. Um, but, you know, it's not a different way. All the stuff I was doing in particle physics was computer coding uh, in big collaborations, exactly the same as I'm doing now. It's really fun and interesting work. There may be climate scientists and, and, and maybe some of the time that we think, oh, God, this is awful. And you, obviously, you can sit in a conference and, you know, and uh, see something incredibly bleak about predictions for coral reefs or the effects of climate change that are happening or predicted. Obviously, all of that happens. But in between, it's just, you know, someone's tried a new statistical method or someone's gone out and got muddy and taken some new data and... You know, it's all the same process of just doing messy science as anyone else. And so what can be funny is the incongruousness, I guess, of that normality of science and the scientific environment with the external view of climate scientists as the ultra-good or the ultra-evil and the perfect or the, or the terrible. But we're just scientists. We just think it's interesting and useful and important. And so do other scientists in their fields, in medicine and in nuclear physics and in anything else. You know, we're really not that different. You can find Tamsin on Twitter at Flimsin, and she also has a fantastic blog called All Models Are Wrong. Head to blog.plos.org forward slash models to read it. This is the last episode in this, the first season of No Planet B. I already have some very exciting interviews in the can for season two, so stay tuned. And in the meantime, thank you so much for downloading and listening to this season. I really enjoyed putting it together. If you enjoyed listening to it, do consider giving it a nice review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and tell your friends. That really helps me out. You can also listen out for me talking about the climate on Grown Up Land on BBC Sounds soon. If there's someone you think I should definitely feature in season two, drop the podcast a line on Twitter at No Planet B Pod. It just remains for me to say goodbye from season one and see you all in season two. Vacate your habitation pods. Drilling for hydrocarbons is about to commence. 
Oh, God. Pod, read Carl Sagan's Who Speaks for Earth and turn it up loud. In our tenure on this planet, we have accumulated dangerous evolutionary baggage. Propensities for aggression and ritual, submission to leaders, hostility to outsiders, all of which puts our survival in some doubt. But we've also acquired compassion for others, love for our children, a desire to learn from history and experience, and a great, soaring, passionate intelligence. The clear tools for our continued survival and prosperity. Which aspects of our nature will prevail is uncertain, particularly when our visions and prospects are bound to one small part of the small planet Earth. But up there, in the cosmos, an inescapable perspective awaits. National boundaries are not evident when we view the Earth from space. Fanatic, ethnic or religious or national identifications are a little difficult to support when we see our planet as a fragile blue crescent fading to become an inconspicuous point of light against the bastion and citadel of the stars. How would we explain all this to a dispassionate extraterrestrial observer? What account would we give of our stewardship of the planet Earth? We have heard the rationales offered by the superpowers. We know who speaks for the nations, but who speaks for the human species? Who speaks for Earth? This is your final warning. Vacate your habitation pods. Drilling will commence imminently. From an extraterrestrial perspective, our global civilization is clearly on the edge of failure. And the most important task it faces? Preserving the lives and well-being of its citizens and the future habitability of the planet. We've reached a point where there can be no more special interests or special cases. Fundamental changes in society are sometimes labelled impractical or contrary to human nature, as if there were only one human nature. But fundamental changes can clearly be made. We're surrounded by them. A new consciousness is developing which sees the Earth as a single organism and recognises that an organism at war with itself is doomed. We are one planet. And our small planet, at this moment, here we face a critical branch point in history. What we do with our world right now will propagate down through the centuries and powerfully affect the destiny of our descendants. It is well within our power to destroy our civilization and perhaps our species as well. If we capitulate to superstition or greed or stupidity, we can plunge our world into a darkness deeper than the time between the collapse of classical civilization and the Italian Renaissance. But we're also capable of using our compassion and our intelligence, our technology and our wealth to make abundant and meaningful life for every inhabitant of this planet. To enhance enormously our understanding of the universe and to carry us to the stars. Planet B was written and performed by me, Gemma Arrowsmith. Our theme was composed by Odin Hall-Marson and our artwork is by Tom Crowley. Incidental music by Kevin McLeod. We will see you next season. Thank you for listening. Listener.